Everybody wants a wine brand, right? There are a lot of partnerships in wine with musicians and artists of all types, including athletes. I think it generates excitement and interest for the space, and so that excites me. Whether it turns into actual hard dollar sales, less so, because don't forget the average American, uh, we drink wine in less than a 24-hour period. Uh, we, we go, we buy it, buy it, and then we drink it, versus in other right. societies, they store their wine. Welcome to another edition of the Columbia University Sports Podcast, The Cusp Show, where we talk about the business of sports and disruption, technology, innovation, marketing, all different kinds of things. I'm Joe Favorito. I am flying solo this week as Tom Richardson, my co-host, is off doing business things that make money, probably selling some of his virtual horse racing. Uh, but Tom Cerny is uh, sitting in as our producer again this week. Um, and today we're going to talk a little bit about a business we really haven't talked about on, on top of it, but also kind of brand reinvention. But we haven't touched on the wine and spirits business. We've done a little bit about beer, um, but the vastness of that business and how a little bit it ties not just to sports, but to lifestyle um, is one thing we're going to touch on. But we're also going to talk a little bit about Olympic experience and social responsibility, all different kinds of things. Uh, but we will start it off with a little bit of wine. And our guest today is Caroline Shaw. Caroline is a longtime friend, but just started uh, a new kind of step in her career uh, with the Gallo Wine family. So Caroline, welcome to the Cusp Show. Thanks, Joe. It's great to be here. There we go. So uh, like I said, why don't we start it off kind of at the beginning? Uh, your career has touched on so many things, you know, consumer in the housing business, some of the, uh, the social responsibility stuff that you've done, uh, working both at the NBA for the Miller family in the Utah Jazz, uh, and with the Salt Lake Olympics working for Mitt Romney at one point. So can you kind of walk us through how the heck you got here and, and all the wine you've consumed along the way at, at not one wine stop, but another one as well? You know, I like to tell people my mom was a Gypsy Joe and I grew up moving all the time. And I think that gave me a cadence to know, to be very adaptable and, um, and curious, you know, er, at an early age, we were learning about the, uh, looking at the Greek coffee and learning about architecture. And a lot of, there are a lot of wine glasses along the way, to be honest with you, because mm -hmm. wine is very much a cultural aspect of, uh, of life and it, it and it's meant to be enjoyed in moments that matter. So um, that sort of international upbringing led me to getting a degree in international relations, which I would tell all your student listeners, don't let your degree drive what you do in your life. Um, because my graduate degree is in Middle Eastern studies, but here I am managing corporate communications and brand marketing for the largest winery in the world. Um, so uh, I started at the State Department and switched to the UN, which was an incredible experience. And then I had the great honor to go work for the 2002 Olympic Winter Games with Mitt Romney. He taught so much about the, the importance of bringing the world together in this very uh, confusing world. It was six months after 9-11, probably the best job I ever had. Fell in love with Utah and uh, stayed, as you mentioned, with the Utah Jazz. And then along the way, someone said, hey, um, you know a lot about international relations and wine. Would you like to come west and move to California? And that's where I've been since. So um, walk us through 
couple couple questions. Where'd you go to school? First of all, you get those great degrees. Oh, George Washington University. We need to plug the schools. I've been a lot of time giving my daughter as a GW graduate, but there you um, go, go GW, good urban. And um, so, for people who don't know, that was the Salt Lake Olympics, and the Salt Lake yeah. Winter Olympics were very different um, because of the fact that they were back in the states, but because of the way they were run and the success, the business success that that came along with that. So, can you walk us through just a little bit before we get to? Um, the Jackson Family Wines, and then Gallo, and some of the other sure. stuff. Sure. I mean, as I, as I mentioned, why were they successful? They were successful because we. It was a turning point for the Olympics, and there was a large bribery scandal, and um, really talked about the men in suits. And the Olympics were very much run by business and by men in suits. And what we did is, I think, the pivotal moment was we focused back on the athletes. And I think that's been the success of sports ever since then. If you stay focused on the storytelling around your athletes. And mm -hmm. so we really, even if you saw all of our ad campaigns and everything we did, it was always about the athletes. So when you walked into downtown Salt Lake City in February of 2002, you saw large banners um, with focus on the athletes. And so that was sort of a pivotal thing. It was also um, a period, as I said, six months after 9-11, where we were really trying to think about the sponsors didn't want to come, even some of the athletes didn't want to come. There's large security concerns. It's hard to put on games in the United States because unlike other um, Olympic games, we have, to we have to really earn the money ourselves here in America. So sponsors were really a critical key. So it was about relationships. Mid had a lot of relationships. It was about being very transparent with the media, I I'd say. We, it was a very closed organization prior to MIT's arrival. And so we opened up. And so we opened up our, our books, our board of directors meetings. We had weekly, monthly interactions and media plays with the press. And so I think that led to the focus on the athletes and being more transparent in everything we did was part of the success story and um, welcoming the world. Cool. So it's the Olympics end. And as maybe not a lot of people understand, a lot of those jobs and you've invested all this time just kind of go up into the ether. So you got to figure out almost like a political campaign where you're going to go next when that run is over, no matter how positive or negative it is. Um, you stay in Utah, you work for Larry Miller's company. Um, again, an organization very traditional, not a boat rocking organization, the jazz, minor league baseball team, a lot of his other businesses. Um, how did the, the lessons learned during the Salt Lake Olympics transfer to get you to the NBA? I think it, it was about innovative thinking. And I think a lot of times, both in wine and in sports, you know, you get the, the intern who's done a great job and sort of worked themselves up through to the higher ranks of an organization. Well, that's certainly one way to do it, but I think it's really important that you also have the skill set. So I'm actually seeing that out in the marketplace today um, in the wine industry specifically. It's like the homegrown talent versus the, I know I'm digressing from your question, versus people coming in with MBAs into the business. And so I think you have to never lose sight of um, the fundamental skill sets for the jobs that you're working in. And it's, it's, been a, it's been a challenge as I come in and look at new organizations, I think across my um, portfolio. But that was one of the things with the jazz. It was time to sort of um, take a good assessment of the communications team and really upgrade the talent that we had there and really focus in on the business, the business of the game and how, how or what we were doing with our um, communications outreach really 
filling seats. It was a transitional time for the jazz when I joined and, you know, Carl Malone and John Stockton had left. And so it was, what, how do we, how do we get Jerry Sloan, you know, rest his soul and all the others really thinking differently about engaging players and uh, the organization. And that stems from being out in the community. I think no matter where you are and what you're doing, you always need to be part of your community and stay connected to community. And the Miller family was very much part of that, but the players weren't. And so one of the fun things we did there was um, give out preseason tickets, uh, preseason tickets. And we really went out and had the players hand them out personally so they could be a connection to the players at a school, at a library, at a grocery store where you're like, you know, hey, Rod, came from the a name from the past. Hey, Roger, this is Roger Bell on aisle three. Come see me for some tickets. So it's just thinking more innovatively. And I remember the president of the jazz told me, <clears throat> if, if Larry, if uh, Jerry Sloan will let you do this, I'm all for it, but there's no way you'll convince him to do some of the things that we did that were pushing the needle. And that comes from trust. You really have to build trust and get that credibility with the people you work with to really push the needle in a different way. Cool. Um, and, and we're going to touch on trust and um, over communicating and some of the things that have translated throughout your jobs, but making a transition and then you basically leave sports, right? Is that when you went to KB home at that point? Yeah, I did. I did. Um, it was an opportunity to get into a big major pollen market, which I think every, I, I'm trying to gear this a bit to your students. So that's not the direction. You're touching on every point. Actually, at the end, we're going to have no questions. So that works out really well. So <laughs> I really think that everyone should spend some time in a major metropolitan city, be it Chicago, New York, LA, and uh, to really test your skill set. It's very different from a, a second tier market like Salt Lake City, or I live in sleepy agricultural Sonoma County right now, to really um, test your metal and see, see how your ideas grow. And so I really wanted the opportunity to um, go and live in LA and work at a Fortune 500 company to see how that's different. And it was a huge difference. Transitioning from a family organization to working for a Fortune 500 company, it was all about the shareholders. And what I learned about myself there is I'd rather work for a family company. I like mm -hmm. to look at the long-term vision and really see where, we are, where the family stands on social justice issues or where they stand on um, investing in their employees. When you work for a Fortune 500 company, it's really about the, it truly is about the shareholders. I will say I probably made the most money there than I've made anywhere, but um, money's not everything. Right. And, and what were some of the, the differences working for a publicly traded company in the, the housing business at the time? Was that a time when that housing business was booming or was that around, the, that was around the bubble, right? It's right around the bubble. And so there again, you take some of those lessons learned from the, you know, every, every job you have, you have to take the good and, you know, keep remembering those pieces. Um, and so that transparency played a big part when it when imploded. Um, KB Home, actually, our chairman was walked out uh, with the Department of Justice and, and uh, there was a large scandal. And when scandals hit, I think the most important thing, and this is a tip for crisis communications professionals, is separate the business, separate the individual from the business. So the very first thing we did when we had the... Um, the backdating scandal at KB Home was really to take the individual, uh, the CEO, and spin the story this way and talk about that, and then really manage that through legal. That's the big difference when you're working shareholder versus family. I think every nuance is managed through attorneys, 
And then the second piece was to stay focused on, on the product. So we are winning awards for some of our designs in Texas. It's a national organization uh, company in Texas and other places. So talk about those environmental awards you were getting and talk about new, new communities opening. So when a crisis hits, split, split your, the people are separate from the company. If, and that's the way to do it, in my opinion. So you go from there <clears throat> into another very public industry, but one, <clears throat> one owned by a family. And it's your first kind of real foray into the spirits business, which is a little bit different, especially given all the time you spent in Utah. Um, hey, tell us you, you can get a drink in Utah. Don't, don't you worry. You just got to go. I get that. But anyway, so, so you get to um, tell us about Jackson Family Wines, which people probably don't know. And, and the two things I think that are important that if you could communicate is, it's like someone saying, I work for Pepsi. And they say, oh, you work for Pepsi. And in your, you close your eyes and you see the Pepsi logo, when in reality, it's 30 different brands that you could be working for in sub-brands. So walk us through a little bit of, of both Gallo and but first starting with Jackson Family Wines about the depth and scope of the business you know, and the opportunities that, that you came across there, because there's so many companies, I would imagine, that are involved in both. So the Jackson family is exclusively wine and exclusively a premium wine company. And um, you're right. People didn't know. And purposely, many of these companies purposely, these family owned wineries keep their name behind the scenes and, and really uh, stay focused on, on the product, on the wine itself. So Jackson Family Wine is best known for Kendall Jackson. It's the number one still to this day, the number one selling Chardonnay in the United States um, at a premium price, price point. So they, they, never, they never want to touch the golden goose, if, if you will, when it comes to doing innovative communications around. They have about 50 wine brands, mostly in that very upper tier luxury, um, you know, the four or $500 bottles of wine. And uh, I'd say their average price point is about $50 and 25 to $50. And they really do focus on their premium portfolio and engaging with collectors and the high-end restaurants that you see and sommeliers. Um, what I've really enjoyed in the time at the Gallo family, um, and, and I will say both families really do take a long-term vision for the land and for their organizations. And, and that's, I'm very, very blessed to work for the two of the most preeminent family-run organizations in, in wine. Um, like they both care about sustainability. I think an interesting note to share with your listeners is that agriculture accounts for 20% of the carbon footprint out in the world today. Now, wine is only 1.8% of that, but it's a reason why anyone in ag needs to really stay focused on sustainability and the environment. Um, I'd like to talk about the Gala family. What attracted me to them is that they they have a much broader portfolio. And what makes them exciting to me is their whole mantra really is, how do we win new friends for wine? And how do we really broaden the occasion where wine is involved and enjoyed? Um, and I think the reason I took the job is Stephanie Gallo, I heard her speak and then she and I were chatting and she said, we need to democratize wine because it needs to look more like America and nothing to detract from what the Jackson family was doing in terms of the premium set. But let's be honest, you know, the average wine drinker, you know, they enter the category at under $10. So the Jackson family wines are one that you, you know, you, you aspire to, to a certain extent. And the Gallo wines are so broad and deep 
that there's an opportunity to bring everyone into the category and enjoy it. Because in my humble, humble opinion, um, every story is better when shared with a glass of wine. And I've always, I feel blessed to be in this industry because very much like sports, there is some connectivity there that um, they, they connect people, they're, they're relevant. So it's, uh, you know, sports, no matter, it doesn't matter what your economic social status is or your ethnic identity or your gender, you, it brings people together. And I think wine does that too. Wine and spirits do that in a very special way. Um, for those who don't know, can you rattle off just a few of the Gallo brands? That Absolutely, that happy to rattle away. Um, yeah. our, our probably most popular is uh, Barefoot Wines. Everyone's relatively familiar with Barefoot, Dark Horse, Apothic, Andre. At the higher end that competes along with the Jackson Family Wines portfolio, it would be Jay Sparkling, uh, Louis Martini, a mar uh, winery that's been around for ages, very historic, um, Talbot. I, I mean, they have about 100 brands. They also own some preeminent uh, spirits. Uh, High Noon. High Noon is... Um, you know, we can talk about the hard seltzer category and how that's just yep. growing. everyone, everyone is coming out with a hard seltzer, you know, mm -hmm. high noon, um, pink, pink, Whitney. Uh, it's just endless. So both Jackson family and Gallo, how do you storytell? Do you pull people together? Are there silos that work for each one? Do you try and put together, are there unified messages other than you touched on social responsibility and kind of the agribusiness that work together. How, how does all that work, especially from kind of a brand marketing standpoint? Talk about Gallo specifically. Like, is there, are there just barefoot people and then there are people in the other brands or is there a way that, that you've been brought in to try and figure out how to take one from one piece and put, put it against another one? Yeah. So at both companies, actually the wine brands stand alone as, as do the spirits, their divisions. And so mm -hmm. they are standalone because very similar to Pepsi, you want to think about that Pepsi bottle, right? You want to think about the bottle of Kendall Jackson or the bottle of Barefoot. Um, so what we what they do is they're, they're standalone brands. And what I would like to do at Gallo is really bring the family story to the forefront because it's mm -hmm. probably the greatest wine story never told. Um, they've been around since 1933 and still family owned and operated. Um, third generation now, my boss is uh, third generation of Ernest and Julio Gallo. I mean, Carlo Rossi, all those pretty preeminent brands that have been around a long time. So, um, so they are separate, but I think there are, there are pieces that thread together in terms of um, how you tell that story. I think one of the things that we have to do is really um, inspire stories that curate is an important piece of the puzzle when we're talking about wine. Explain that. What is it? What do you mean by that? I mean that that continue the conversation. I always try and tell my team one, you know, does why would the customer care about this storyline? How is this wine or spirit uniquely different? And is the is the story we're telling engaging enough for me to tell tell your friend about it? Was the product mm -hmm. so amazing that you want to share that? Or was more the moment? I mean, I think that's what we're seeing right now. We all break out of COVID. Um, lockdown is that you've seen that across the board. It's like we're we're anticipating the wine and spirits business, uh, the Roaring Twenties to come back. So oh. how are we going to be represented in all those moments that matter that haven't been part of um, 
the last, you know, 14 months. Mm -hmm. How does um, the differences, again, kind of contrasting and comparing from a social media standpoint, how uh, Gallo handles social and what does that look like and how important is that versus when you were at Kendall Jackson, which was a few years ago, but how they handled their social in terms of value and resonance in the marketplace? So at the premium cap, premium, the upper echelons, they're less engaged on the social piece of it. I will say COVID taught everyone in the wine industry, whether you made 500 cases or 5 million cases, the importance of e-commerce for the obvious, mm -hmm. right? I mean, that has just quadrupled. Gallo, you know, had its best year ever last year because of the e-commerce business and everyone was quick to get that started. Um, but uh, for Gallo, it's extremely important. I mean, we are in places that the Jackson family would never play in. We're looking at TikTok and Clubhouse and Twi mm. you know, Twitter, all, all those things. We're looking at way to stay culturally relevant. And so um, that's a critical piece of the storytelling and the communications outreach and, and working with influencers. And again, being authentic to uh, having wine look like America, that Demrock, that really, really inspires me this uh, having wine be more reflective of what America looks like. You know, you think of wine, you think of, um, you know, white, white tablecloth restaurants and, and it, it's not, it, it should be, you know, one of the most preeminent master sommeliers in the world, there's only about 120 of them said to me once, Hey, Caroline, don't get so caught up in the scores and, and, and the verbiage it's either yum or yuck. And that's really right. stuck with me, yum or yuck. You either like it or you don't. Um, mm -hmm. Don't let someone preposition you as to what what you may or may like. And let's be and I'll be honest, you can sign you can find a pretty good bottle of wine for ten bucks, just as much as you can find a great bottle of wine for a hundred bucks. But it's really right. about what your personal flavor is like, your profile. Cool. Um, before we get to the forward thinking part of this, which is going to be talking about the um, the the seltzer business, which is continuing to grow and. Uh, especially as we go into a summer and how that's exploded in the last couple of years, no pun intended. Um, talk about a little bit about the ties to sports because we're here now on the Friday, the last Friday of April for Saturday in May is the Kentucky Derby and uh, horse racing will become a little bit more prominent. Um, but the Jackson family was involved in the horse business. Um, was it more a personal business or a marketing uh, piece? And then, how do some of those brands now at Gallo translate to sports? We had a conversation about polo at one point, which I didn't think made any sense, but there are opportunities for brands in the wine space who have been, you know, probably not as much as beer, but they've been involved. So how does sports in terms of a marketing demo, especially given what you just talked about, about being the face of America, fit into the wine business, starting with, with Kendall Jackson and now obviously much more with Gallo? Yeah. So First of all, horse racing and thoroughbred racing is, it was at the heart of uh, Jess Jackson. He grew up on a horse farm and saw Sea Biscuit run. So they have thoroughbred farms um, in Kentucky. So it's a completely separate business owned and operated by their thoroughbred estates. So it was, um, it's very authentic to who the family is. And um, they have only this year really capitalized on that partnership where they have made Kennel Jackson sort of the official line of horse racing to a certain extent yeah. with um, mm -hmm. with partnering up with, you know, it's not just everyone thinks about the, you know, the fastest 
five minute, whatever, two minutes in sports. It's, it's not just about the Derby. It's about the Preakness and about the Belmont stakes there in New York. So, mm-hmm. um, and it's, you know, I don't tell you it's big business, uh, horse mm-hmm. racing and, and gambling. So they're integrating there by trying to, um, have the wines represented. Um, <laughs> and, and the sports, I mean, I, I have to laugh. No pun intended. I just picked up. This is the May thirty first wine issue of Wine Spectator, and we we're going to talk about. And I want to talk about the athletes right after this. I know the athlete piece of it. I was like, wow. Um, So we're trying to at Gallo. We have a brand called Dark Horse, and we're also trying to sort of engage there and get wine tied to horses and thoroughbred racing. And uh, you know, when you go to your grocery store, pick up some Dark Horse for your. your horse racing party. But uh, I guess it's more about going back to that point when I said earlier, it's uh, being engaged in moments that matter and being engaged in things that you call, you bring people together for. And so that's where I'd like to see wine and spirits show up. Um, and you just held up the, the cover of Wine Spectator with Carmelo Anthony. Mm-hmm. It seems like every time we turn around, Caroline, there's some athlete who's suddenly a wine expert. I remember there was something during the, the the bubble where you had Dwayne Wade and seven other players talking about, you know, their investment in wine and how much they love wine. How does the celebrity, especially now with Gallo, factor into the growth of the wine business? And is it a passing fancy or is it something that, you know, you could actually leverage off of with a partnership with an athlete um, on that? It's, it's not just athletes. It's, it's, cele- it's, Actors and actors, I mean, it's every, everybody wants a wine brand, right? And so when I was at Jeff W, we did a, uh, a partnership with Drew Barrymore as an example. Um, and yes, and there are a lot of partnerships in wine with musicians and artists of all types, including athletes. I think it generates excitement and interest for the space. And so that excites me, whether it turns into actual hard dollar sales, less so, because don't forget the average American uh, we drink wine in less than a 24 hour period. Uh, we, we go, we buy it, buy it, and then we drink it versus in other right. societies, they store their wine and, and let it, you know. Uh, and I, I would imagine even like, and it's funny that you bring that up because I would imagine even the beer industry looks at it as you bring it home, you don't drink the entire thing right away. It kind of sits in your refrigerator for a while as opposed to wine, which open, drink, move on to the next one. So um and I know we're going to turn. Go ahead. Yeah. Well, I was going to say, and I, I mean, I'm learning about this also. You know, I've got a wine background and a wine sort of, you yeah. know, level of uh, certification. But I just learned that uh, with seltzer, you have to drink it with like 90 days. Like wine, yeah. I Mike, one of my children just turned 21, and we opened up a, a bottle of 1998 uh, William Sion Pinot Noir, which doesn't ever, you know, that's not known to be ageable like Cabernet, for, and it was incredibly fruit forward and tasty. And so that's a 21 year old bottle of wine. I learned yesterday that, or last week that seltzer, because we're coming out with new seltzer product, 90 days, that's it. Got to drink it in 90 days or it goes bad. So talk about a little bit about the growth into the seltzer business. I would imagine um, there's a a brand out there that has a claw in the name that kind of really- No, we don't want to talk about that brand. We don't want to talk about White Claw. We won't talk about them. But, But the amazing thing about the seltzer business is is it built more on word of mouth? Because you don't see a lot of marketing that's going towards it right now. It's just something that, that is becoming much more popular. How, how does Gallo get into that business? Gallo's in very much entrenched that business with High Noon. So right. um, it, you're, that's going to change. I'm starting to see uh, 
some streaming truly is out there streaming and White Claw and others. Um, so I think that they are starting to engage and put more levels of alcohol into it as well. I mean, you're seeing mm. wine seltzers, vodka seltzers, heart, you know, it's just the diversity. Someone's talking about a, a coffee-based seltzer, um, you know, buds into the, the category as well. It's, it's just imploding. Uh, and so we're very much in the game and uh, we're looking to expand as much as we can in that category. Um, Barefoot Wines has a, a seltzer as well. So it's, it's continually growing. I think it's not word of mouth. I think it's who gets in the cold box and who has the, the biggest um, stacks at the grocery store right now. Interesting. And because the, the question off of that is when people go looking for wines in a store and they're, they're not getting any advice, they tend to look at labels. So is the, the labeling and the naming of particular wines more prominent than other businesses that you've been in where that's kind of the decision point. I buy that because it's a cool label. I don't really know anything about it. Or is it still kind of like the bait and switch? You get somebody to buy it because of a name and then then they come back and they're more brand loyal. Or, or is it based on the label and how long is the brand loyalty? Will people buy one wine because they like it or will they switch it up? Yeah, so wine is an exploratory product, uh, beverage. And so people like to try different wines. And you're right, if you don't know anything, if you've never been to the Russian River Valley where I live in Sonoma County, and you don't know that it's got a cherry cola fruit forward uh, Pinot Noir that resonates with your palate. I was just gonna say that as a matter of fact. So anyway. <laughs> <laughs> you're gonna go for that label. So label design is incredibly important. I think, I think that's uh, across any marketer, you know, what the, what the product looks like. And you're seeing that evolution all the time with products. So a uh, wine labels, yes, very, very important. We hope to educate people about uh, regions. And um, I like to always push local, of course, but uh, yeah, the wine label is very, very important. But wine, to your point, it's hard to build brand loyalty in the wine category because it's an exploratory product, very much unlike spirits. I'm learning that as I joined the Gallo organizations. Mm -hmm. At wine, if you don't have... Uh, Jay sparkling, I will say, hmm, okay, I'll pick up another bottle of sparkling wine or champagne, right? Because I'm at the grocery store and I, I, I want to make mimosas this weekend, uh, which is trending high. Mimosas is like the most number one Google search in the alcoholic beverage business for this past week. I thought that was fascinating, mm -hmm. um, how to make a mimosa. So <laughs> odd tidbit, Joe, sorry. But um, what's interesting is that if you go in and your Jack Daniels isn't at your local liquor store, yep. you're going to keep searching for your Jack Daniels. Does that make sense? So it's. Yeah, it's no, I mean, it's funny. That was the brand I was going to bring up is people associate Jack Daniels with not just a lifestyle, but it's, it's almost ubiquitous like Xerox. When people think about it, they think they're drinking Jack Daniels versus a wine where there's so many different choices when you walk into a store and you probably know uh, more about either a color or a, something that you like versus what, what brand it is. Um, and sometimes, because like you said, the brands can be, I don't want to say diluted, but there's so many brands that could fall under one company that you may not know that you're drinking a Gallo wine because there's no path to show what, what brand that is, correct? Absolutely. And so what I would hope, and it, it, it would be the long haul, is that when you see a Gallo product and you know the Gallo family name, that you would know that means quality in a bottle and value at the price point. And so that's, right. that's what I'd like to see 
the team that I work with do in the next three to five years is really have that representation, um, a little bit like Procter Gamble, maybe to a certain extent, if you have a sense of that product. But touching back to seltzer, <clears throat> you know, people who are Bud Light loyalists will probably pick up a Bud Seltzer, at least to try it, right? Right. So um, you know, brand loyalty is important. I will say one of my last comment is though on that is that if you do see a wine that you know they've grown, you know, when you're trying to impress the in-laws or your first date, you are gonna, that's when that brand loyalty piece comes in. You're like, okay, well, I yeah. I had, you know, dark horse or apothic before at the grocery store. I'm gonna bring that bottle with me, or if I see it on a on a menu, I'll I'll purchase it. So, you know, you, you don't want to take chances there. You know, it's interesting when you talk about kind of the, that brand pyramid, uh, you mentioned Procter & Gamble, but I would imagine General Motors is kind of the same thing where you're either going to buy a Cadillac or you're going to buy a different one, but you know the GM brand is one that you want. A um, couple of other quick questions to think about. Uh, the U.S. wine business versus the global wine business. And if you're a consumer or a marketer in the U.S., how more, how much more attention do you pay to competing against American brands versus uh, European brands. And then the other piece of that, because you spent a lot of time in your career around social responsibility, how does, with the growth of this industry, how does uh, responsibility and responsible drinking factor into the messages that, that Gallo especially has to communicate? So I'll take the first one first. It's very hard for American wines to compete in wine growing countries, right? So it's very hard to win to sell our wines, to export wines to Italy or France or you know Chile or Argentina. Um, and I think wine plays a role geographically. Uh, nothing frustrates me more than going to a restaurant in Manhattan where you see you no know, California wines. It's very European centric, right? In California, it's the opposite, right? It's, you see a lot of California wines. So um, not a lot, we pretty much dominate the wine list in California with, with some unique, uh, European or South American or Australian or New Zealand. I mean, it's a global global business, as you mentioned. Um, so that's sort of the, the, the scene. I would say that um, California is the number one producer of wine and California is the one number one exporter of wine. But, it, but it's a challenge because um, people, as I said earlier, want to explore. So you want to try what, and that's great. I, I want people to explore. I want them to try new varietals and, and uh, Test a New Zealand Sauv Blanc against a uh, Californian Sauv Blanc, right? Test the White Haven up against a uh, Matanzas Creek, as an example. And then uh, on the social responsibility side, how how does that factor in, especially today, where you're trying to get people to consume more, uh, the drinking responsibly messages, which obviously have caused beer, especially the beer category, to kind of take a step back, especially on the college side for a long time. Now they're obviously more involved because of the drinking age, but so how, how do you factor that into kind of the strategy on the marketing and the communication side? Yeah. So everything we do focuses around drinking responsibly, both uh, at the Gala organization and throughout the wine industry. Um, when we, we, and we have very, we're a very highly regulated organization, uh, mm -hmm. federally regulated. So even when we do our advertising, our, um, models for lack of a better term have to be 25 or older even though 20 wow. legal legal drinking age so um but that's very important to us you know we want everyone to drink like all the alcoholic beverage businesses and i would say as we look at social social issues and sustainability and we're now creating 
sort of a, at Gallo, a sustainability approach, re responsible drinking is one of those pillars that is very important to the family and to the organization. So um, we take that quite seriously. Great. And then um, last two questions. One is, given all the, the businesses that you've been involved with uh, throughout your career in the various places, how do you stay constant and also translate those either communications or marketing skills from what you learned when you were in on the political side or at the Olympics or, or KB to what you're doing now? That's number one. And then number two is if someone, a young person or someone transitioning really has a passion for the wine and spirits industry, what are some of the skills that you look for? So how do you stay constant? And then what are the skills that people should have? I think I personally stay constant in terms of always learning, being curious and, and trying to stay culturally relevant. So I, I, I joke, I, um, I read the, I'm a huge podcaster. So this is near and dear to my heart. I had to add the cuss to my mm -hmm. list. As you may know, I'm a distance runner. So I, you know, I, I listen almost every day to the daily and the times mm -hmm. vine pair, which is an industry podcast. And, uh, I like to listen to uh, Brene, Bra Brene Brown on Dare to Lead keeps me grounded. For a young person, I think uh, learning about WSET is, um, is a certification that I would recommend somebody drinking as much and tasting as much and learning as much as they can about the product. But one of the things that I touch on this early on is whether you're in marketing or communications or finance or uh, e-commerce, it's don't forget the fundamentals, you know, more and more people just learning how to write and how to engage is, is some really how to communicate. Don't forget who your audience is. I think we, we can get, especially in wine, we can get really caught up on ourselves and, uh, and, and that's bad. You have to remember who you're speaking to. Cool. Um, any other skills Nate? you obviously, before we came on, you talked about, you know, your two young people who are in the process of, graduating and starting the rest of their lives. Um, other skills that you think translate across um, industries that, that are important to have, other than the ones you mentioned about writing and curiosity. Um, well, I tell my, I, important. My, guiding, my guiding principle across my life has been collaboration, creativity, and communications. So I call them the Caroline three C's. Uh, it's been really something that's always been important. I think paying it forward, I know that sounds very trite, but it's true. And at a more senior level, <clears throat> I think it's really important to let others shine. Um, it's not about yourself, it's about others at this point in my career. But for students, I've, I just had my daughter do this, is um, she's very interested in becoming a, a civil rights lawyer. So I had her go and I searched my network high and low and asked people for recommendations. So she spoke to five people in that business. And now she's got her friends calling me who are interested in sports. So again, that networking piece. So a young person out there should um, go to your parents. They know people and um, say who in their network, who people want to help. You know, that's through, especially during COVID, but pre-COVID, people are kind and generous and they want to, and you're probably one of the most kindest, generous, gracious persons I know, Joe. So it's an honor to know you and be your friend. Cool. Well, that's a good way to end this. I like the way to, to end it that way. Um, Caroline, uh, last question is for people who want to find more about not just the, the wine side of Gallo, but the business side of Gallo, where can they go to find out more about the business? 
Um, both family organizations uh, and Miller, Jackson's, Gallo don't share their internal business um, goals, but you can always follow them <clears throat> on industry trades, wineindustry.com. That's really mm -hmm. uh, probably where I go to, to keep up to speed on what the competitors are doing and what I'm doing. Cool. Well, we raise a glass to you, Caroline Shaw. Thank you for joining us on the Cusp Show this week. Um, as I said, we have never really talked about the wine and spirits industry, plus your kind of diverse career through the Olympics uh, and the home industry and the politics side has been uh, great. I think uh, we learned a lot. We learned about the three C's, Tom Cerny and I, which we didn't know about. And now we kind of picked that up and lots of little trivia and uh, really interesting insight into a business that we hadn't talked about before. So Caroline Shaw, once again, thanks for joining us on the Cusp Show today. My pleasure. Once again, this has been the Columbia University Sports Podcast, The Cusp Show. Our guest has been Caroline Shaw of the Gallo Family Wines, talking about the marketing and the communication side, not just of the wine business, but all the places she's been in her career. I'm Joe Favorito for my co-host, Tom Richardson, and our producer, Tom Cerny. We'll see you down the road. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW group. Void prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.